I'm here, my mom. Twenty thousand feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors, and I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through the top floor. Three R's rip right round your jugular. Three R's rip right round your jugular. You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, PhD, and our feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be sitting down with Elizabeth Cooper of the Queer Body Love Speaker Series. I've been working with Elizabeth on some of the behind the scenes elements. So I'm very familiar with the series and I can definitely vouch for uh, how fucking rad it is. So I'm really excited that we get to talk with her and share the work with the FKJ community. But before we do that, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the Internet? Excellent question. You can find us on the internet in select places. For example, on your favorite podcast application. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already. You should also leave us a review on iTunes so we can see how you feel about us. And I know we got some new reviews in. Rachel, are you going to read any today or maybe next week? Let's save it for next week. Oh, cliffhanger. If you left us a review in June, you might hear yourself on the radio next week or on the podcast, rather. And if you haven't and you want to get in under the wire, you should leave us a review and maybe you'll hear your review on air next week. Dang. On the social media tip, you can follow us on the gram, the Twitter, the FB, which stands for Facebook, if you didn't know. You can like our Facebook page or you can join our closed community group, which is Feminist Killjoys Community dash WTF Power exclamation point. And on the FI, we have our Feminist Killjoys PhD mixtape, which Rachel keeps updated. And if you have some extra dollars and want to support us feminist, feminist media makers, (laughs) you could. This is not the time to (laughs) impress people with my accents. Okay, you can donate one time donations to our website, which is feministkilljoyspodcast.com. You can click on the birdie. Bernie Sanders, we still remember you. And what else? We have a Patreon account, no big deal. And you can become a Patreon subscriber. Benefits of that is you feel good for supporting us. You also get access to our Killjoy Review newsletter that Rachel sends out once a week that I help with. And then also, if people are donating $5 or more, you can have access to our What Up Bachelorette podcast that we're just doing on the side. And it is going to get intense, people, just so you know. It's going to get real, real. The next episode that we put together, some shit is going to go down. So if you want to get in, statement. if you want to get some real feminist arguments, we haven't even recorded it yet. And I know it's going to it's going to go somewhere. So, yeah, it's going to be good. Almost as good as The Bachelorette. Lots to say. Lots to say. (laughs) Even if you don't watch it, like I was saying last week really digging into feminist media studies and how that applies to social issues and just the show as Rachel has been arguing for many years really highlights a lot of the shit that happens in our in our society and it's a very interesting and engaging way to talk about that stuff. I can't believe I'm saying that. I know. But you you never would have believed it. But I'm open. Ago. I'm open to learning and changing who I am. I'm not I'm not that stubborn. Uh, it's, a good, <laughs> it's a good quality to be open. Yeah, totally. Mm, last but not least, our email address, fkj.phd at gmail.com. How are you, Rachel? I am well. I was just in the cleave. That sounds like a sex thing. <laughs> Did you get into uh, her just, cleave? It is. It's like cleavage. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, I guess. That, that, it does sound like that. I'm sorry. It's Pride um, Weekend. Can't help myself. <laughs> sorry, Rachel's so, mom. <laughs> so Cleveland was Cleveland was pretty good. I saw just a handful of people. I wasn't there too long. But I don't have much time for movies these days. But my family, my mom and my uncle are big movie people. So we saw two movies, which I can talk about during our WLs. But so that was fun. And I saw two of my dear childhood friends and their babies and a couple other family members, which was a mix of good and difficult, as it tends to be. But it was okay. And then I just taught a triple at the yoga studio this morning. So I'm very tired. My flight got in late last night, but I'm doing okay. Did some work in the cleave. Everything's good. How about you? Are you going on your... Didn't Logan have like a surprise trip for you or something? Is that soon? 
Yes, second week of July. We're going somewhere. I don't know where. I don't know where either. He won't tell me. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah. I'll let you know. (laughs) I don't think anybody knows. Seriously, like, I knew about your surprise party, but I have no idea. I think he's worried that, like, I don't know. It it would slip. Yeah. I have no idea. Okay, because I couldn't even remember when you were going. I was just hoping that maybe, or not hoping, but I was curious when it was. It's not like next week, though. You're not, like, traveling. Because I was like, oh, my God, is she, like, traveling back to back? Because that gets really stressful. It gets super stressful. It's the 4th. We're leaving on July 4th. Oh, okay. So you have some time to, to like, Yeah, chill. I have, like, a, okay, a week to regroup. Okay. Yeah. Good, good, good. Do you have, like, did he say any anything? Any hints? No. 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 I how, mean, I maybe have some ideas, maybe, but I don't How are you going to know what to pack? I would be, that would stress me out. He's going to tell me the night before when I'm packing. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Okay. He, yeah, he wouldn't even tell me how he was going to reveal. You think that I have secret conversations with Logan, but let me tell you, I do not. (laughs) Okay. You guys occasionally have secret conversations. Well, I meant like you might have assumed that he would tell me or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, he's he's keeping this one like super secret. Yeah. Will you tell me when you know? Yes, I will. (laughs) I will. I'll probably tell the whole podcast. Oh, my God. I'm so excited for you. Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited, too. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I just took up all my check-in time. I will just say, how am I? I'm great. Neighborhood kids came over here yesterday and played video games. It was awesome. I get to go see my buddy Tate in Milwaukee. That's going to be awesome. And I'm basically running a cat sanctuary now, not for dead cats or cats that are about to die. But I also inherited my neighbor's, my old neighbor's elderly cat. And, like, instead of just going over to her house, I just brought the damn cat over. And now she's just still here. So sassy if anybody follows me on instagram it's sassy i've just kind of adopted her um so i have like a house full of cats i can never keep track of where they are sometimes they get to go outside i can't remember when they go outside and when they don't but they're all eating together happily in one room they only hiss randomly when they walk by each other it's like pretty amazing for a cat just to like get dropped in and then nobody really cares so right She's also very old and like doesn't have like she's not threatening. And she brought a bunch of really good wet food with her. And so I think the cats are like, that's cool. And she literally is old. So she just sits on the couch and sleeps and then meows at me for a snack and then goes back to sleep. I mean, she would even snuggle in the bed with me with the other cats. Like the other cats aren't even getting jealous about that space. I live in a cat wonderland. Anybody is welcome to come over. That sounds fabulous. All right, let's let's go. So like I said, we got to sit down with Elizabeth Cooper, and Elizabeth is a queer body love coach, an artist, and a guide. She hosts the annual Queer Body Love Speaker Series each summer around Pride Month, and Elizabeth coaches private clients, leads group courses and workshops, and facilitates retreats so that you can learn to live and embody your own liberation. No small task. She lives in a 13-person queer collective in San Francisco, which we talk about a little bit, and travels to present her work and works virtually and with clients all over the world. She's very impressive, and uh, like I said, I've had the pleasure of working with her on this Queer Body Love Speaker series, and I'm so excited for everyone to hear all the things she has to say. So, Melody, do you want to transport us to the interview? So thank you, Elizabeth, so much for joining us. Um, Our listeners just heard your impressive, cool, super cool bio, so they know who we're talking to. Before we get started, can we do a quick pronoun go around? Melody, you want to start us off? Yes, I'm Melody, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Rachel, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Elizabeth, and I use she, her, or they, them. Thank you. And really thank you for making the time to join us. Uh, It is Pride Weekend in Minneapolis and San San Francisco, right? That's where you are, Mm -hmm. yes? Yep. And so it's a busy weekend. And you're also, no big deal, like in the middle of a giant launch for (laughs) Queer Body Love Speaker Series. So we really do appreciate that you're making time. So first, could you just tell us about your work as a coach and also the sort of who, what, when, whys of the speaker series? Ooh, that's a lot. Okay. Yeah. You have two minutes. Go. (laughs) (laughs) I'm super excited to be here. I I love thinking and talking about why I'm doing what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. And as you mentioned, I'm hosting this speaker series. So I'm on the other side interviewing people. So it's it's cool to have the, the mic turned back on me. So my business is Queer Body Love Coaching. And I work with 
primarily queer and trans people, although if there's somebody else who's drawn to the work and is interested in what a feminist and queer perspective and angle has to do with their own healing, then I definitely am open to that as well. I found in my own healing process from borderline anorexia in high school that theory was really a helpful part of my journey. And so that's what I offer to folks is this blend of, yes, there's personal and spiritual development tools that can be really helpful. And let's look at the larger picture of why you are struggling to begin with, because it's not about you inherently. It's about the things that we've internalized from the outside world that make us feel terrible oftentimes about our bodies and who we are, how we love, how we live, et cetera. So that's a little snippet of the business side, the coaching side of things. And under that umbrella of the business, I work with people one-on-one in groups, lead retreats, workshops, speak, and the speaker series is one facet of what I offer to folks. And there's so many reasons of doing it. And and one of them is to have an accessible offering that anybody can, anybody with an internet uh, capabilities can access from anywhere in the world. Let's see, who, what, when, where, why? Let's break it down. So who, I'm Elizabeth, I'm the host interviewing uh, all the interviewees. And so this is my second year doing this series. And this year I'm interviewing queer and trans leaders only. Last year I had some straight folks in there as well. And I've I spent a long time actually in the selection process. It was it was really challenging because I was looking for a lot of different components. And to be honest, I kind of wanted to interview everybody. I would just be like, oh yeah, you're awesome. You're awesome. And then for capacity wise, I had to, you know, narrow it down and pick only I decided to do 15 for this round, although I'm thinking about perhaps doing more. We'll see how it continues to evolve. And I picked people who are doing amazing work in the world and have interesting ideas and thoughts on the main question of the series, which is how do we love ourselves, our bodies, and each other in the face of oppression, which I'm sure we'll talk more about and is a big question. So I I feel like, you know, take a pause, like (laughs) take it in. So people who I thought would resonate with that question and have interesting things to say. So they're artists and activists and other coaches, healers, leaders, and really prioritizing trying to have a diverse range of perspectives in terms of identities. So prioritizing having people of color and trans people and disability and size. And um, it's mostly, I think everybody actually is, there's U.S. Americans and Canadians mostly. I'm really, that would be an, another edge is to get more international next year, but not yet for this one. So that's the who. The what is there, I interview folks on this larger question and then, you know, break it down and I have a bunch of sub questions of how how they explore that question in their life and their work and uh, we let the conversation organically evolve from there. And my hope is to give folks larger contextualization for both our struggles and our desires for liberation for ourselves and for other people. And both going from the, again, like with my business, going from the personal to also the theoretical and how they can inform each other. So, you know, how, how can we think about this question in a larger sense? And then practically speaking, you know, what's a tool that you've used to support yourself in choosing yourself and unlearning unhelpful internalized depression? So that's the what. Okay, well, so I interview people on these questions for and the end product that people will receive. The event itself um, is going to be a 10-day free online event where two of these interviews are released, released per day via email to the people who sign up. They're 30 to 60 minutes about, and they'll, they have captions and transcriptions. Thanks to you, Rachel. Mm -hmm. And then there's also going to be a workbook alongside. So a chance to really allow the interviews to touch you and to provoke you and to see what are the, the ways in which you can actually incorporate the inspiration and ideas from the interviews. So instead of just passively listening, having a chance to really engage with them and support you in, in this question. How do we love ourselves, our bodies, and each other in the face of oppression? So interviews themselves, workbook, and then there's also a free online Facebook group that last year when I did this, it was just so beautiful to see people connecting and sharing their stories and inspiration and questions and photos. And so that's a really beautiful community hub to unpack the interviews and just how they relate to one's lives in general. So again, interviews, workbook free online Facebook group. And the whole thing is free. And then there's options to add other components like 
webinars or a coaching session with me, et cetera, if people are wanting to take it a little bit farther. And we'll release all of that once a thousand folks sign up. And so that will be sometime this summer. It's currently June, um, the end of Pride Month. So we released the promotion and, and now we're, we're building the momentum and the movement and the community so that we can all really enjoy and take the fruits of all these speakers' labor and, and really, yeah, work with it in our lives. That was a very thorough overview. Uh, well, I had a follow-up question and well, I had two follow-up questions. One, what is your coaching like? Because I'm just interested in the concept of, of coaching from your perspective. And then also back to the event, you took a obvious positive approach to this. Um, you could have taken a lot of different approaches to how you're going to be interviewing people. But why do you think kind of focusing on the positive and empowering and having people speak in ways that other people can relate to, like, why that way instead of, for example, like more of a amp you up, let's like fight back against the system that has been destroying us, especially lately. Did you think about that, like kind of the emotions built into your approach? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess maybe the question is, is really just like, why? Why this? Why this um, approach? And so uh-huh. if you, you wanted mm-hmm. to speak more to, to that. Yeah, for sure. And I, I noticed that I left out the why because I was like, I'm just speaking too long. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nope. I was like, I'm just going <laughs> to, I'll just add a really nice, like, lengthy question that gets at the why. So, right, then yes. Some more voices. Yes. Um, so, and I, I think it also relates to how I do my coaching. So, I can Great. try to weave those two together. I feel like I saw the benefits of personal development world and activist world, and I saw them as kind of separate. Like, the personal development world, it seemed like it was all about the positive without any sort of acknowledgement of oppression and of, quote unquote, the negative or the harder things. And I found when I started learning more about, I guess, from the activist side of things, I started feeling really frustrated with those personal development spaces because it felt devoid of the, it just didn't feel as real. And I was like, uh, you know, are we just deluding ourselves by just working on ourselves individually? And like, why aren't we talking about these things? And then from the activist world, I feel like I experience such power in the critique and the willingness to question. And that's something that's really that core to who I am is really questioning everything, which can be fun and annoying. <laughs> and the yeah intensity of questioning from the activist side felt really exciting, but sometimes it felt like it lost some heart and some focus on the personal. Okay, and we're still humans living in bodies with other humans. So how do we, yeah, I mean, the question of the series, how do we love ourselves in that and not negating that things are wrong or hard, but that's just not how I, I'm oriented towards what are the new possibilities and how can we create those? And so wanting to blend and bring the two together. And that's how I coaching as as an industry is not a regulated thing. And there's not like a one like this is what a coach is. And I think that's part of why I've been drawn to it is that there's a lot of space for me to to do and work in the ways that I think will be most helpful for people. And part of that is bringing in perspectives, like actually having a stance and ideas from my own experience and from my own background and and research about specifically about bodies, about fatness, about um, embodiment. And like somebody might say, quote unquote, pure coaching is simply holding a client's agenda and eliciting, bringing out from them what their truths are. And I think that that's awesome. And I focus on that. And if we don't have a particular context, if we are not examining what perspective we're coming from, then it's going to inherently be reproducing some unhelpful thinking. So in a lot of, in coaching books, for example, or personal development books, they have tons of examples of weight loss is inherently good. And so if somebody just picked a random coach, you know, that would be the perspective that they would likely hold and it would impact the way that they're working with the person, even if it's super subtly and continuing to reinforce those things. And so my perspective is very explicit. It's like, I have strong perspectives on how focusing on weight loss will not be helpful. Wait, how do I want to say this? It's tricky because a lot of people, even in 
you know, body positive world, there's, there's debates about this of like, how do you put your perspective? My, my perspective is basically that by focusing on weight loss, we're losing out on the deeper lessons that we can be learning about how to be with ourselves. I'm not going to give away, you know, big parts of the series, but since I've had the pleasure and privilege of being able to hear some of the interviews, like I think something that is hard for people in the body positive world is when you have fat identified people that are like, please don't begrudge me if I find weight loss to be a survival mechanism and a coping mechanism, which is something that came up. So I think it's really easy, especially for folks who are not fat identified, but maybe still struggle with body image, which is something that I consider myself to be in that category. You know, for me as somebody who, you know, whatever passes as thin, or I don't know how people want to talk about Mm -hmm. that, but you know, I, have access to a lot of things that fat people don't in terms of moving about the world. And so it's easy for me to be like, never talk about losing weight ever. So it's, I'm just, I'm just affirming how difficult it must be to navigate that because (laughs) on the one hand, you probably, you know, I can, I can hear you saying, you know, being fat positive and wanting to reject that. But on the other hand, when fat people themselves are saying, please don't tell me like how to live my life. So yeah. So I, I just hear that struggle. So, but to, to, you know, take it back to your, to your coaching style, you know, I th- and I think Melody would agree because she and I both love therapy and read self-help books. And and yet, you know, it's really frustrating when those things don't address systemic and structural oppression yeah. and injustice. So I think it's it's really cool that you're trying to combine those those things. I'm trying to basically say that I have a perspective and it takes into consideration that what we're talking about, like that these these issues are complicated. There's no right answer. And at the same time, I'm not going to come from a like unconsciously unknowing mainstream perspective about what you should do with your body. Along the theory lines, are there particular theories or or theorists that you um, have been inspired by to kind of get to this pretty complex and nuanced understanding of body positivity? You know, a lot of it stemmed, I, I would love to actually go back to the theory. It's been like 10 years or so since those initial inspiration points in college and doing research then. And I just read everything that I could get my hands on in terms of fat activism and fat theory and and queer theory and how the two have intersected. And so it, it boils down to core concepts of bodily autonomy and agency. And I learn in conversation. And that's one of the reasons that I love this series is because I get to talk to people who have inspired me when I was doing the series last year. I was like, oh my gosh, Linda Bacon will talk to me. She's um, one of the founders of Health at Every Size. And and other folks, Reagan Chastain, who's a fat activist, and a bunch of different people last year who and this year who I'd read before, and then I got to actually be asking them questions, and then new people who I hadn't known of. And that's been really exciting to me as a way of accessing theory in a relational way that's not me locking myself in a library and reading books. It's like, what's here now in living, breathing human beings who are thinking about these things? I'm, I'm a nerd about theory, and I found theory very empowering. And it's I think it's interesting to, you know, I feel certainly inspired by the sort of more formal academic stuff. But it's really cool when I'm like reading something on Tumblr and feel equally like mind blown about just the way that somebody's describing something without it being peer reviewed. And certainly I'm, you know, I felt I felt that way listening to some of these interviews in the series as well. So I I hear that. The other thing I wanted to say, and I I mean, I do want to ask you to think about the question that you're asking all these other uh, people that you've been interviewing. But before I get to that, sort of related to, I think, what you're saying, and this is going back to Melody's question about positivity. So I've only heard, what, at this point, five or six interviews uh, in the series, but you invited people who explicitly wrote things that were kind of like against the idea of love and self-love. And you invited that. So I actually, I would say that there's at least two interviews so far that I wouldn't necessarily say were particularly positive. Yeah. Um. You know, and so I mean, what was, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that was intentional to like nuance the conversation that you invited kind of contrarian voices to, yeah. to this project. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and yeah, I did want to circle back to that question of why I have this quote unquote positive approach. It's interesting. I hadn't even thought of it like that because actually the way that I'm presenting it this year feels totally risky and not inherently positive in the way that I have been trained by my business coach in the past to 
actually critiqued me for a meme that I made that said something about, I can't remember exactly what it was, but something like about unhelpful internalized patriarchy and feminism. And she's like, I think you're attracting the wrong audience. Like you're being too harsh. You're like, you're going to attract people basically like feminist killjoys. You're going to attract people <laughs> who are like down on themselves and like, don't actually want to change and take ownership over their own lives. And and that's coming from that perspective of like, it's only personal and you just have to, you know, change your thinking within yourself and, and then life will be good. And I was really mad at her. I was like, no, that's like exactly what I'm interested in being in those difficult conversations because I think mm-hmm. so often in the personal development sphere people don't want to do it because it doesn't feel it's not as easy a sell right it's like not one two three and then you'll be great it's yeah let's really first acknowledge that it can be really hard to, especially if your body has been marginalized by society in multiple ways it's not necessarily going to be an easy answer it's complicated and to have an approach to that question that is aimed towards possibility. Yes. Like I want to hold both. I want to be deeply hopeful and deeply hold the complexity and the challenges that come up when we're trying to make change within ourselves and with our communities and with each other. And so I am super, I'm nervous and I'm really excited about how the interviews are going to land with people and different kinds of people. Like my mom, for example, watched all of the interviews last year. Last year there were 30 and she just really appreciated being able to have a lot of these concepts broken down. She's like, I feel like I understand your world so much more. And I think I had a little bit more of a, in some ways they felt more accessible and more focused on that kind of like, okay, and now, you know, what do you do for you approach? And there was a lot of versions last year too, but this year I've, I've stretched myself and taken more risks with my speakers too of asking questions that feel harder and that elude easy answers. And it feels a little bit more to some extent, like an insider conversation. And I'm curious about for folks who haven't been thinking about these things already, how, or whether they're going to land, whether it's going to invite them in or not. And yeah, it just, it feels, it feels risky and exciting to me because I feel like I don't see these conversations happening like half the interviews when I've hung up, the person has been like, Oh, wow. Well, I've never been asked those questions before. Like, Oh, mm-hmm. that was really edgy. Or like, Oh, how did, like, how did that go? Because it's, it's not the typical script. It's not the like, okay, yeah, this is the work I do. And these are the one, two, three. It's like, okay, let's go deeper and beneath that and push that and challenge that. And let's continue to come back to, you know, like, what are you doing that is helpful? And, and so holding both of those things in the interviews. I love that about them because, you know, I think it's really cool that you're like, okay, here's a very tiny brief thing about these folks, but actually we're just going to have a conversation that's going to be really weird and hard and go in a million different directions. And I think that's really cool. (laughs) You mentioned the question, the main, the sort of crux of the, of the series this year. And, uh, you know, I've, heard you ask several people at this point. So I, I really would love to hear maybe if you could even say how you would have answered this before you did the interviews and mm. how that's changed. Mm-hmm. So the question you ask is how do we love ourselves, our bodies and each other in the face of oppression? So again, this could be an entire different hour long conversation, but you mm-hmm. know, maybe just sort of a summary of sort of how you approached it or what thoughts you had in mind when you were constructing that question. And if anything has changed since you've been talking to these folks. Oh, yes. (laughs) I mean, I was thinking about it this morning and thinking about what I would say. And I was like, I think every day, every moment, I might have a different answer. (laughs) And, And that's been part of what's been really inspiring in doing it is having a really strong intention in deeply listening to the speakers, really hearing them and allowing their experience and their stories to touch and impact me, like my thinking, my questions, my way of being, like how I'm even approaching the series itself, which is inspiring and, and slightly destabilizing because whenever we really question ourselves and how, what are the underlying thoughts of how we're approaching our lives, it can be a little bit destabilizing, but I get to be in conversation with awesome, awesome people about it. So that's great. Okay, so how would I have answered it before? I think I didn't know. I think that's why I was I was I was trying to think of you know, what is the theme of the series this year? How do I want to approach it and writing and I just wrote that question. I was like, "Oh, that's the question. Like that's what I want to know." That feels so in alignment with what my what both my work is and what my edge is, like what I'm exploring and how to do better and what I what I really honestly want to be in conversation with people about. 
Um, last year, it was, I think basically just didn't have, it didn't have the complexity or it didn't have the focus on oppression. And I, that's, I mean, I've kind of been answering the question already that I was thinking that I might say in response to this, which is holding all of the truth, like holding the complexity of that question and seeing how looking towards the contextualization of oppression can actually support us in our personal healing process or in healing process with our bodies and with each other. It feels like those, those three elements and how they interplay and being in conversation about that feels like the most important piece towards what the answer is. Like that the answer is asking the question basically Mm -hmm. that the answer is that there is no one answer, but that it's radical to even try to look in the direction of what the answer might be because we're not typically doing that because we're typically um, segmenting out the questions. How do I love myself? Okay. Like, let me see what are the self love things I can do for myself? Okay. How can I love my body? Okay. Like, how can I love this person? Okay, wait, here's oppression. Like, I think that the conversations are happening, but they're happening separately. And so how can we look at the intersections and, and how they can support or how they hinder each other? Yeah. Rachel, how would you answer that question? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, <laughs> and that's the, that's like the first response that I get from people often. Oh, oh, gosh, that's big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's huge. And I mean, I feel like I can't, you know, I can't unhear and unthink these things that I've been hearing in the videos. Which is for me, I definitely have like a before and after hearing some of these talks. Just in even the idea of, you know is thinking about love the valuable question? And I think ultimately I do still come down that 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 is, but I've appreciated some of the perspectives that's like, why does this have to be the question? Why is it about love? What does society think about love? Why why are we choosing that word? What does that feeling do? One of my sort of activist mentors that described sort of how to motivate union workers basically to like, you know, for to get people who are already very marginalized, who are living under capitalism and white supremacy, who are marginalized in particular ways to sacrifice their time and labor to like strike, for example. And Mm -hmm. this person said, you know, people take action because of either love or hate. And uh, that means if you need to like instigate people hating their boss or people hating white supremacy or people hating the cops, like whatever it is, like that's valuable because that's going to motivate people too. love can also motivate people, you know, if it's about their kid or their whatever. So, you know, I think about those kinds of things a lot because like I'm a big I think then this maybe Melody is getting to what your question was about, you know, why not anger? You know, why not? Why not Mm -hmm. cultivate that? So I think, you know, I think about those kinds of things. But it's but it's also, like I said, I mean, as somebody who does a lot of personal development stuff and has worked hard in, in terms about thinking about my own body and my interpersonal relationships to people. And, and I am, you know, inarguably as much as militant as I can be in my sort of rhetoric and in the streets, I am, I think, motivated interpersonally by loves. There isn't an easy answer. And we I mean, it's gosh, I don't know. Melody, what, what have you been thinking about as we've been talking and since you've heard the question? I was thinking about Mr. Rogers. Um, (laughs) Melody loves Mr. Rogers. It's not funny. Um, (laughs) Just kidding. No, it reminded me of Mr. Rogers because I feel like it's a very gentle question, but that it also gets at the problems in this world, which is a way in which, like, Mr. Rogers often talked about really difficult subject matter. So if you haven't seen his show, any listeners out there or, or Elizabeth, I'm not sure your history with Mr. Rogers, but he would actually bring up some, like, really difficult stuff like war, you know, parents getting divorced, violence. But he would talk about it in a very gentle way that reminds people to love one another. And so that's why it reminded me of Mr. Rogers. And the reason why I see the connection as well is because because he's a really good influence for me in terms of in the face of oppression to I don't want to say calm down because that's something that women are told often and I identify as a woman, but to refocus some of my energy on how I can take care of myself and other people and not in a codependent way, but just as a um, how do we love each other and that anger is only going to get us so far. And if we love one another, then things are going to get better. I roll my eyes when I think this, you know, and when I read his mm-hmm. stuff, I he has a point um, and he impacted a lot of people with his approach to uh, his interpersonal communication with a lot of people. And he 
uh, kind of embodies a lot of the spirit that we were that you've been talking about. And this question for me is challenging in that in that way because of that loving ourselves. You know, it's a word that I kind of bristle at because it just makes me uncomfortable. I'm more comfortable with my anger and my rage. And it's a hard ask to turn inward and ask yourself to like truly love yourself and actually to think about what that would look like. Whereas I'm more comfortable loving other people and taking care of other people. That's like more my, you know, my specialty in life. All that to say, yeah, that it, that I was, you know, I was remembering Mr. Rogers and mm-hmm. I was also thinking about how the question would make me, the question makes me feel less uncomfortable as it goes on. It's like love, eh each other okay oppression like yeah I can I can I can deal with that but also when you were talking I was thinking about some really like concrete things that I think you know that I've seen people do online in terms of like different body types uh, and gender non-conforming bodies in that the power of just putting if you have the bravery and the courage to share yourself on social media I think it sends a very powerful message to other people that you know, people like Lizzo. Um, I have somebody that I follow on Instagram who's just like a bicyclist, but she'll just like put on a tank top and she does not, she has what she calls like a soft tummy, you know, and seeing that stuff, it's like, oh yeah, let's remember that not everybody has a flat stomach, nor do the most attractive people in my life look like that either. You know what I mean? And so I think that visual images is really powerful. I'm a media scholar. So of course, like I'm going to, I buy into that, but I think that visuals are very important for especially women who have been trained visually our whole entire lives to measure ourselves up against visual representations of our gender that is basically not real. They're fake imagery that we've been right. duped to believe in. So the the too long didn't read responses. <laughs> Mr. Rogers is uh, a connection and the power of social media and visualization of different body types would be part of my answer to that question as well. That makes me think of just hearing more stories, which I think that's part of the reason for the series is what is the representation and the stories that we're fed? And then how can we, like, I'm sure both of you, you know, are media makers, so create new stories and possibilities for us to, to hear and experience. And the part about love, I think that is what I'm partially interested in too. Like what is, what does love actually mean? Is it sentimental love? Is it like, and I would, what I'm at is not that it's something that can include and is not exclusive of rage that there's a depth, I think that I'm interested in that comes from recognizing the larger picture, you know, recognizing oppression and the hard parts that love doesn't mean that you're not going to feel sad and rageful and uncomfortable emotions. It's about, it's something about an orientation and an exploration. I guess that that's what I keep coming down to for myself and just who I am always have been is somebody who's interested in being in the questions themselves. And I would add, as you were just talking, talking about how rage and love are not mutually exclusive. I think that a lot of people's rage is based in love because they yeah. are because I love my neighbors so much, right? Like I have rage for what the police are doing to them because right. I would I can't even imagine one of my neighbors like not showing up tomorrow because the police decided to do something really fucked up. But that's all mm-hmm. based in love. It's not the love starts first and that produces the rage for mm-hmm. me personally. Yeah. And I think we need healing spaces that allow us to feel held and seen in all of those emotions and the complexities of those. So I'm talking about the series, but then that's also in the individual work or the group work. Something that people are really drawn to is that it's a, it's oftentimes a space where they can finally, for the first time, feel really seen and even open up to what that could look like because they're so used to shutting down different parts of their identities in different spaces because body positive things are often not super queer friendly and so, et cetera. Like there's a lot of different places where that can come up. And so literally just being in a space where it's like, oh, I feel like my nervous system can relax enough so that I can do that personal work as opposed to feeling like on edge, I feel vulnerable enough about my body. I don't want to also have to feel vulnerable about something in relation to my identity. Even if like the cis straight people around you are generally nice, you know, or like want to be supportive, there's a different sense when there's people who really, who get it on a different level. 
Absolutely. It opens up space to the harder conversations because I think so often folks who are more living at the margins are trying to even, well, it depends on kind of what angle people are taking, but, and I've been noticing this in this interview too, like it depends on who I'm speaking to, what sort of narrative I want to say and how I want to say it. Mm -hmm. And so, because for somebody it might be totally radical and challenging to hear something that I think of as, is not super challenging. So I need to really break that down and, and like hold them through that process versus kind of assuming like we have some sort of shared understanding around, for example, okay, oppression's real and that impacts us in our bodies. Okay. With that starting point, let's allow ourselves to go into the more complicated conversations that we wouldn't allow ourselves to have with people who don't have some sort of baseline because we wouldn't be able, feel seen or safe enough to, to, to notice that it's, there's not an easy answer. Like if you're trying to present a party line, so to speak to people who aren't getting it, it's, it's a different energy than, okay, let's, let's actually really be in the questions together. Totally. I think Melody and I have struggled with that, honestly, with this podcast, because we, you know, in theory, we started this to make things accessible. And then we find ourselves having conversations as to, longtime lefty queer feminist activists. And we do try to pause and say, you know, okay, if you don't understand that term, let's break this down. But at the same time, sometimes we don't. I think there's also power in allowing people to like bear witness to two sort of insiders. And I'm not, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that, you know, clearly there are differences between you and some of your speakers. So you're not completely on the exact same cultural experiences, et cetera. But just to be able to you know, Melody and I talk, say things about the cops a lot that, you know, is not like 101, is not is not mm-hmm. something that everybody's going to be on board with. But I think when you give access to these more sort of intimate conversations where people do feel safe to be themselves and then allow others to hear that, then that sort of onus can be on the maybe, you know, like your mom mm-hmm. maybe didn't totally get every single thing that people were saying, but then maybe she could do some research or something based mm-hmm. on this thing that she got to hear people, two people talk about who, who understood something that maybe she didn't understand. Yeah, for um, sure. Because how often are, are people who are living at the margins or marginalized in, in various ways doing that all the time with, you know, exactly. mainstream culture? So yeah, I think, I think that's totally true. I'm curious about your living situation. You live with 13 other people in a collective and I'm wondering <laughs> if, you know, how how does this question you're asking in the series translate to your daily life navigating <laughs> collective living? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm laughing because it really I I moved to the Bay Area partially because I wanted to live in a collective space and basically be exploring this question. Like I didn't know mm-hmm. I didn't have the articulation of the question itself, but I wanted to not just be in the theory and the books around things. I wanted to like, you know, yeah, be living it. And I've been here four and a half years. It's um, a 13 person queer, mostly queer collective. And it's been really challenging, like in a lot of ways. And I feel like in the last six months or so, it's finally kind of been, it's turned a leaf in terms of feeling closer to what I moved here for. But because it is so diverse in different cultural and just different backgrounds, I think something that we've had a challenge with is how to find what we are really aligned on and what we're really committed to and how to communicate through challenge, particularly when there is trauma involved, which there is always or not always, but you know, often and, and navigating this balance between having something and two things I want to say one at one moment, somebody said this and it just really stuck with me that we are a social justice house, but not a social service house. So part of what's been really important has been identifying or trying to identify when we have capacity to support a particular person or situation. And when we don't like when we might have compassion, but we don't have the the skills and resources to be able to hold the traumatic response that's coming up or what have you. And that's those are super challenging conversations to have and to work through as a community. And the second thing I want to say was, I can't remember actually what the, this was an answer to a question during one of our, when we interview people to live here, they also get to ask us questions, which is always an interesting moment of having a reflection back on ourselves of, oh yeah, like what do we think or feel about that? Or how do we operate? And this one person just said, well, you know, 
we try. <laughs> like there was something, there was something about like the sincerity of that and the trust of seeing, looking around the room, being like, "Yep, you know, we're all trying our best." And I think that that's something helpful and important to come back to in terms of this larger question is orienting towards it, and then also like trusting yourself and other people that we're all doing our best. And and then how can we call each other forth to do better and rest in it's enough, you know, that, that continuous back and forth um, and holding a lot of spaciousness with also the intensity and the intention towards the question. Like I think sometimes gentleness or spaciousness or the, the ways that people can talk in personal development can then kind of, you know, it's like putting your, head in the sand. It's like, oh, just ignore the things. And it's like, no, let's not ignore the things because they're too hard. Let's have so much gentleness and so much love for ourselves and others that we can look towards it. Like that almost it's a prerequisite to have that level of commitment to love in order to ask the difficult questions and and be with each other in those questions. Totally. We could probably have an entire, well, we could have, a, a, I've, I've joked many times that we could have a reality TV show. About yeah, I bet. Kids. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my God, 100%. You know, we, yes. <laughs> um, Who didn't do the dishes today? And then questioning people's anarchist values. <laughs> Don't you see the poster? It says. <laughs> well, and I heard yeah. like it's been a, it's been around for over fifty years. And somebody talked to somebody who lived here many many years ago, and they're saying, yeah, back then like the women did a lot of the housework and the men mm-hmm. did not. And uh, like, what are what are the elements of that that we're conscious to, and and what are we not conscious to, and how do we become more conscious to them? And then how do we do the dishes and like pay our rent and you know like balancing both the larger questions and then the practical day to day? I think often is a is a question for us too <laughs> you just totally va- well I think I'd already been validated but I also lived in a small house but it was like run collectively you know communally and guess who went and did all the grocery shopping and all the dishes <laughs> the women it was like are you kidding me like I'm living with the most wokest white anarchisty people and mm-hmm. the women are still the ones that are doing the dishes and all the grocery shopping and organizing all the cleaning. Like, it is amazing how deeply rooted the patriarchy is everywhere. For sure. And also white supremacy. Think, Something yes. I noticed at one moment was I looked around at the the budget committee and I was like, oh, we are all white. Like, it's about half. It's about mixed. Mm-hmm. Half is he half white? And I was like, that okay, that's something we need to, we need to look at and be conscious of and, you know, how is power distributed in the house? And, and that's been something interesting, you know, it's supposedly non-hierarchical. The only thing explicitly that's done based on seniority is when somebody moves out, then the choice of what room you move into is based on how long you've been here. Supposedly nothing else is hierarchical, but there is inherently power that's being distributed in different ways from a bunch of different things. So I think that that's something again, with that question of like, let's look towards oppression as opposed to thinking that by looking towards it, we're going to reproduce it, which is a critique that I've gotten recently being with some more mainstream people in, in some context and just being really confused about why I'm even having this lens, why I'm having these conversations and um, some of their questions around like, yeah, feeling like it's negative or feeling like it's going to put people in boxes. And it's like, no, okay, why don't we use the lens so that we can be with the the more challenging questions of how this manifests in our daily lives and not run away from it. I was just curious where you see this project going in the future, if not like one year from now, five years from now, like where do you see it going? Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. Mm. Um, just call me Ira Glass with my good questions. <laughs> I mean, it's been, so I'm in a business mastermind called Turtle Tank for radical entrepreneurs. And it's been super interesting to be, they have such different philosophies around some, the way that they approach work and suggest that we do. And part of it is about letting things emerge and developing the ecosystem that's based on what you really care about and what you like to do and how you like to do it. And so basically the answer is, I don't know. And what I feel clear on is that I feel super passionate and excited about these questions and these ideas, being in community around them, and that 
I, you know, I love interviewing. I love asking questions and creating community. I love like all the components of the project. And so I could see it going in a lot of different directions. And I think for me, actually, one of the the edges or the things that's next for me is a, a clear message that I got for myself of what's next in general or what I'm wanting is to be um, a voice in the larger conversation that's happening. And I, you know, I've been asking these, these questions of everybody else. And I think I'm really wanting to take time and energy to be reflecting on what I'm learning and what I really think and, you know, offering that as well. So this was a, you know, one of the stepping stones towards that of developing my own perspectives and voice. And, and it fits within the larger context of the business too, of queer body love coaching. And something I know within that is that in-person connection is invaluable and super magical. And so I'm excited about how the, you know, this project that's, that's has a particular format also feeds back into holding space for 15 queers in the woods who are like doing naked hot tubs and, and ritual and staring into each other's eyes. And, (laughs) and, you know, like it's just, it's really magical what's been happening on the retreats. I think that's one, one part of the overall practice and business that really excites me in terms of the actual embodied answer to these questions. And so having all of those different components of my practice and business inform each other so that they are contributing, you know, to the world by answering this question, by asking the question. (laughs) So that's my current answer. Ask me tomorrow and I'll probably have a different one. Yeah. (laughs) I love that though. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. Again, we're really grateful that you gave us uh, some time. And can you just tell people how to sign up? And also, maybe we can plug people who want to transcribe because we still have more videos that could use some help. <laughs> oh, yeah. Awesome. So com, And on that page, you put your name and your email address in the box. And then it will send you an email to say that you're in and and then you're in and then we'll let you know when it actually begins once we hit that a thousand mark. Yeah. And we also, Rachel has been very generously, wonderfully organized doing the captions and transcriptions and organizing that. And it's a, it's a huge effort and we need some more people to help volunteer in exchange for that. You get all of the interviews and transcriptions and audios and also some webinars and some other fun goodies. And so invite you to be part of the, the project. Uh, so you can sign up for free at thequeerbodyloveseries.com, which will be linked to. And if you have any issues getting it, just email elizabeth at elizabethjcooper.com. And again, like I mentioned earlier, you're going to get the video interviews, also a workbook, access to a free closed Facebook group, and other goodies as they arise. And so it's going to be super exciting. And I would love to have you as part of the the community that's asking this question of, of yourself and, and with each other. So please join us. I would love to have you. Awesome. Thank you again, Elizabeth, so much. Have fun at Dyke March. Goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. I do like wavy hands when I do that. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I mean, yeah. that would be not okay if you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was really cool. Wasn't that fun to talk to her? Yeah, she's rad. No pun intended. Because yeah. um, she's radical. Wait, I don't know. Because she's a okay. radical person. She's. Is that really a pun, though? Or just. <sighs> no, just <laughs> sorry. That sounds like summer brain talking. I'm like sitting here sweating in my little pa- uh, pantry studio. So I'll I'll cut you some slack for that less than stellar joke yeah elizabeth is super cool i'm really glad everybody got to hear about about all of that uh before we go of course we want to do our rwls of the week so what you got melody do you know what i do sometimes to get to remind myself what i read is look at my browser history yeah because i forget i read so much stuff on the internet what am i reading watching and listening to did you know that a lot of feminist publications do this where they ask each other what they're reading and stuff uh, I think I knew that. Like, are we copying or like, were we a pioneer? I'm sure we were not the first. Oh, fine. I'll scratch pioneer off my resume. <laughs> I'm reading this uh, article called Burn the Town Down. It was published by the Portland Mercury. And my friend, my lovely, lovely friend who I adore so much and 
if he ever listens to this, it's going to make him feel really uncomfortable because he doesn't do love emotions, but I just adore him. My friend Nick, he sent me this article entitled Burn the Town Down by Santi Elijah Holly. And it's about a race riot that happened in Portland in 1967 when a lot of riots were happening across the country. But it's one that's pretty, I didn't even know the history, even when I was reading, not reading, writing my damn book on, uh, in part about Portland and racism and the history of racism. And so it was just an amazing history to read. And it was based actually on a couple people's or at least one person's master's thesis that's that this person found and then wrote an article about, which I find really interesting because I learned about one of the race riots here in North Minneapolis because somebody wrote a master's thesis on it. And it's just really interesting that some of this stuff isn't in history books or hasn't been published yeah. in books. and. So I just really ate up the history um, that where this race riot, well, I'm using that term just because that's what they're calling it. I know it's a problematic term for some people, so I apologize. But this uprising that happened in the park, it's the park that like Nick lives like five houses from. And mm. so he lives in, in a neighborhood that has very deep, I mean, it used to be a black neighborhood. And so we talk about that a lot. And some of his neighbors are still like hanging on from the 60s and 70s. And I say hanging on because of the power of gentrification. Anyway, so I'm reading that. That's amazing. I'll I'll link it in the internet. And then I am watching the WNBA. The Lynx played last night and they won. I was going to go to the game, but I didn't have any friends to go with, so I sold my tickets. And Aww. I know it was so sad. I like, I don't know, all my friends are doing rad stuff, so they're all busy. And um, Robert's out of town. And anyways, it's Pride weekend. I mean, whatever. So... Anyway, stayed at home, did some writing, and watched the game, and they won, and they're amazing. Oh, and uh, it's Title Nine. It's the anniversary of Title Nine, so they had these amazing, oh, yeah. like, little audio clips all game about the importance of Title Nine. And I mean, they were very celebratory, but to just kill Joy for a second when Title Nine came out in the 1970s, to came out when it passed in the 1970s, the amount of female coaches skyrocketed. But w- what's been really sad is over time it's dropped, um, and it might have even dropped below the rates that it was before Title. Nine at this point and so something's going on with female coaches and um there's been some activism around it so although title nine is amazing it has not necessarily like maintained itself there's still a lot of issues so anywho and then i'm listening to charlie parr i went to go see charlie parr last night and i was like the youngest person there was amazing charlie parr is a very well-known folk singer here in the minnesota area he's from duluth uh, and he plays a lot in Minneapolis. And he's just one of those artists that is just a straight up, like, amazing musician. Like, he has an amazing voice. Eddie Vedder, I think I've learned, riffed off of the folk singer voice. Like, do you know how some folk singers go, hey, I can't do it. Never mind. They have this way of singing, <laughs> like, with their little, like, hey, like, the, like, vibrato thing. But it's a folk yeah. vibrato. And, like, that's Eddie Vedder's vibrato. And Charlie Parr, like, has that folk vibrato. And... I was like, Eddie Vedder sounds just like Charlie Parr. Like, he must have some really interesting folk background or folk influence. Mm. Anyways, random yeah. Pearl Jam. I'm going to have to email our our um, former colleague, Christine, and see what she has yeah. to say about it. She's our Pearl Jam expert friend. Anywho, totally. so I saw Charlie Parr, and it was just good to see some, like, straight up, like, super talented musicians, no image stuff. You know, they're all in their, like, crappy jeans and shitty flannels and longs snarly hair and the focus is the music you know yeah yeah. so and oh you would love him too because he talks a lot about working class politics and like a lot of working class imagery i mean he is working class but like i thought about you often during the show because of of some of his lyrics and i'm like i bet you rachel would love this it's like working class folk music so cool charlie parr check him out he's very much up my alley i will check it out Awesome. Cool. Uh, what about great. you? I, uh, like I said, in, in when we were talking about my time in Cleveland, I saw some movies. I saw 47 Meters Down, which is a cheesy summer action shark movie with Mandy Moore. And it was ridiculous and uh, not good necessarily, but it did its job for like a summer thriller. Uh, I also saw Beatriz at Dinner, which I have so many thoughts about and I've been hearing some really interesting discussion and criticism that I don't want to get into because it would spoil it and because we don't have time but I would just be really curious I know you're not you don't 
you don't take a lot of time or make time to, to see movies much either. But if you happen to get to that, um, I, I will for interested. you. What is it called again? I'm sorry. Beatrice's... Beatrice's at dinner at dinner. OK, what's the yeah. plot? What's the premise? Selma Hayek basically gets invited to dinner with a bunch of rich white people. And she is uh, not a rich white person. And it's sort of the dynamics that occur within that kind of situation. But it's uh, it's. It's a lot. Uh, I mean, okay. I haven't totally concluded my my thoughts on it, but I I will I will give like a trigger warning because it it's intense. It's intense, and if you don't like feel like sort of vicariously experiencing the trauma of a woman of color sort of enduring microaggressions and blatant aggressions, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. maybe maybe don't see it. It's it's very it's very intense. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that's good. That's a good. But yeah, GW. yeah. So saw those two movies and it was I, I really love movies I just don't make time or it's hard for me to justify spending money on movies these days uh, or to make time for it even though I really like them so I'm actually glad that I got to, to do that this week uh, wa- uh, so that oh that was watching I did it out of order reading a Rebecca Solnit book called uh, A Field's Guide to Getting Lost as a pleasure read um, and listening to when I was in Cleveland I was feeling nostalgic for my you know sort of late teenage years living there um, so I was listening to a lot of Mira and the Mountain Goats and like Juliana Theory. And- <gasps> oh my God, I love that band. Yeah, you know they're like having a reunion. I do, and they they have a Twitter account, and they liked yeah. one of my tweets about. I was they like, like, this I can't handle Juliana Theory having a Twitter account. It's like they can have a MySpace like account, MySpace account, and that's it. They're trying to like get back in people's consciousness by liking their random people's tweets because they liked when I uh, tagged you in the thing about the promise ring. Yeah, I know. I yeah. know they were liking I things. I don't know who's running their social media account. It is it's as if somebody from 2002 is running their Twitter <laughs> account, so that's totally fine. I don't think they really yeah. understand like what Twitter is. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I need to keep Do they have their tour dates set up or something or I don't I don't think so, but I'm kind of stoked. Damn. Okay, Man, you know that one album. Oh. Um we're at the top of the world. world. Oh. We got a lot of time and it sure feels right. Na 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 and say you can take me anywhere. So good. You can take me anywhere. Uh, you can love take it. me anywhere. Oh, so well good. that's gonna be our outro song. Yep, that's for sure. I don't think they're gonna see us either. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we will feature you on our outro music if you don't right. sue us. Right. <laughs> Drake. Awesome. Yeah. Womp. Womp womp. Should have known. All right. Well, thanks to Hard Copy Cartel for our amazing logo, as always. Snappy's on And that. WTF. Power. Bye. 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 You can take me anywhere. Oh, it's such a good song. That whole album is so good. It's good.
Oh man, I had a carrot coughing fit recently that was pretty gnarly. <laughs> oh, I'm it's okay. It's the worst though. when it's like I, I feel like anytime that happens, it's like when I'm with people that I don't want to be embarrassed in totally. front of and then I'm coughing. <laughs> I did that. Well, my dumbass eats like food while I'm talking to my students in my office because I don't have any boundaries, I guess. And so I'm like eating food and talking with a lot of passion. And so, of course, I'm inhaling carrot chunks and then they irritate my throat. And it's, um, well, you know, for us, I pay people who push hard. It's like, oh, shit, I didn't. When eat. else am I going to eat? Seriously. Right. What, what is what happened with me? I was like, what, oh, fuck. What is a lunch break? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I know. I remember to eat right as the next thing is starting. It's like, oh, well, I forgot to right. eat. Guess I'm bringing my food with me. Uh, Elizabeth, have you ever watched Wayne's World before? <laughs> remember that? The alternative ending at the end of the film? No? No. Do you know that film is directed by a woman? I really media. <laughs> no, that's okay. But I would like you to know, or did you know, that that film is actually directed by a woman? No. I didn't is- know that either until this year. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I will just count us down. 